This is Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Welcome to the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week. Over the next couple of hours, we've got news of the week, insights from the magazine, and more, and a couple of stories that are going to freak you out. Right. And some, maybe you'll learn something about some brands <laughs> that, you know, you won't get too freaked out, including how one private equity investor, I'm very proud of this story, one big on Lululemon. It's not scary. Uh, they came back to fix the company. Yeah. There were some moments of doubt, though. Yeah, but they made a lot of money along the way in terms of those private equity investors. So here's the freak quotient, if I may. And this is a story from Austin Carr. It's about Silicon Valley. They're listening in. They are. I mean, we all of us, you and I both have yeah. these devices in our homes. Pretty much everyone we know, I feel like, has a Google, an Alexa, or whatever it is that's sitting there on your kitchen counter or whatever. Well, apparently that device isn't just listening to you. There are humans who are sometimes listening to you as well. This is going to freak you out. They're all listening. You're going to be worried. Plus, it's holiday time, and we got to visit with two Rockettes. They stopped by the studio, and it is amazing. Oh, my God. They're in all their regalia, even, and if you check out our respective Twitter feeds, you can see them. They're so good at posing. Oh, my God. Everybody at Bloomberg was so jealous that we had them, and they didn't. I know. But first, remember the Bloomberg 50? We were celebrating yes. that in just the past couple weeks. Mm -hmm. Well, we caught up with one of the members of that list, the CEO and co-founder of Beyond Meat, Ethan Brown. What about this year surprised you the most? What was the most challenging? You know, it always is around continuing to educate not only the consumer, but the media around just how healthy and uh, how much our company is driven by the human health imperative. If you look at the products we're creating, take the Dunkin' uh, sausage, for example. That product has 50% less fat. It has 44% less saturated fat. It's 37% less sodium. And it has more protein and more iron. So when you're beginning with a blank canvas and you're able to build a piece of meat directly from plants, you can leave out a lot of the things that you wouldn't want to be consuming on a daily basis, such as cholesterol. And you can lower things like saturated fat. And you can provide the consumer with a very healthy product that they get to enjoy, yet continue to move the ball forward year over year and making the products healthier and healthier. So as we get into 2020, you'll see us continue to drive toward goals that will enable the consumer to eat what they love, but do it in a way that's healthier for them. Well, let's talk about that because I feel like that comes up often about maybe this becoming even a healthier product because there is still a fair amount of sodium and so on in it. Do you guys think about doing some kind of reformulating to lower calories or a lower sodium amount? Is that kind of in the future? So if you look at the DNA of the company, we are an innovation-driven company. We uh, produce uh, all of our products uh, here in the U.S., and we have our, um, our, our innovation center here in, in Los Angeles. We call that innovation center the Manhattan Beach Project. We do that because we're near Manhattan Beach. But more importantly, mm -hmm. we wanted to evoke that sense of urgency and scale that occurred in the Second World War with the Manhattan Project itself. We brought together the very best scientists, the best engineers, the best managers, and gave them a clear goal, which is to build meat directly from plants. Now, when you're doing that, you're always improving. And we have these parameters, we call them fat, flavor, aroma, appearance, and texture, where we're constantly driving toward making the products better in each area. And nutrition would, of course, be part of that. But it's also about marketing and helping people understand the products. So if you look at the Beyond uh, Burger, for example, that has 16% daily value of sodium, not 60, but 16%, which is well within reason for many, many meals that folks will consume, such as two flour tortillas or half a cup of marinara sauce, et cetera. So a lot of it is just separating the misinformation and hype from reality. This product is an extremely healthy product. It's one that I consume almost daily. It's something I feel very good about giving to my own children. And so it's really about let's educate consumers about the health of our products and about the process. We're very proud of our process. If you look at how we produce 
meat uh, from, from plants, instead of running a lot of plant material through animals and the antibiotics that go with that are the hormones depending on the species, the veterinary drugs, etc. What we're doing is taking that protein directly from the plant. We're running it through heating, cooling, and pressure, and that resets the bond so that they take on that fibrous texture of muscle. That's it. For me, that's a much better process and one that we can be proud of. Mm -hmm. We offer complete transparency. You'd be welcome to come to our facilities, knock on the door, and we give you a tour. People should be able to see where and how their food is made, and we believe very right. strong in that principle. And so, Ethan, speaking of a different sort of process, walk us through the process of assessing these partnerships. You know, you name-checked some of the best-known when it comes to, you know, fast food. You've also got some partnerships in casual dining. How does that work? Because, pun intended, it feels like everybody wants a piece of this market right now. Right. So you always want to align yourself with the marquee players, and that's what we've done from the beginning of the company. So when we decided to go into retail way back in, in 2009, the first company we called was Whole Foods. And then we've been able to proliferate out through Kroger, et cetera. But when you then you look at our venture history, the, the first venture firm we worked with was Kleiner Perkins, and now we have a great list, including Great Point Ventures and many others. Um, but if, if you're now uh, looking at the fast food space or the quick serve restaurant space, you also want to adopt the same philosophy. Who are the marquee players, and how do you become uh, – of service to them. And that's what we've been able to do, whether it's McDonald's, uh, whether it's Subway, uh, whether it's KFC or Dunkin'. We're constantly looking, Carl's Jr., Hardee's, et cetera. We're constantly looking to serve the very best partners uh, in the space so that we can grow with them. What's the focus? Is it retail or food service, or will it be a 50-50 split going forward? Our focus is entirely on the consumer. It's our relationship with the consumer that makes the, the business so special. We listened to what they say. They told us no GMOs. They told us nothing artificial. They said keep everything natural. So that's what we do. Um, and that makes it harder, by the way. We, it would be much easier to genetically modify plant material to make it uh, uh, take on the, the texture and appearance and aroma of, of, of animal protein. Right. But we won't do that. And so we're constantly uh, focused on what the consumer wants. We'll meet the consumer where they are. So if it's if it's uh, it's quick serve restaurants, we'll be there for them. If it's retail, we'll be for them. So right now, it's about 50-50, and yeah. the market will tell us which direction they're okay, going. Okay, so it could change going forward. Yeah. All right. And that's Beyond Meat CEO Ethan Brown. For our full conversation, download this week's Bloomberg Extra podcast. We covered a wide range of topics. I mean, look, this is a company that is in the middle of so many megatrends. It's essentially a lifestyle brand. Yeah, and this is why he's part of the Bloomberg 50 list. But I also think this is going to be a big story for 2020 as well. Provocative remarks in the magazine this week with the headline, The Problem with Female CEOs Isn't That They Are Female, It's That They Are CEOs. This is one that everybody needs to stop and mm-hmm. read, and you're going to talk about it after you read it. We've been talking we about have been, it. big time. So now we're going to talk about it with the author, Rebecca Greenfield. She runs all of our diversity coverage here at Bloomberg, the managing diversity team. Recently promoted to yes. run that. Congratulations. Yeah, I'm I'm living the truth that I write about. There you know, you women, we have to <laughs> rise great. through the ranks. Yeah. Exactly. And you really put it out there in this story in a lot of ways and capture a moment that's really important. Give us the thesis. Yeah. So I noticed something that was happening, which was there are lots of companies that are run and founded by women, but they also have these missions that are, you know, we are all for gender equality and our products are going to create this gender equality. And that's great. Um, But then there would be these scandals where employees would say, actually, I'm a woman who works at this company and you are not practicing what you preach. Um, And we saw this happen for a few years. We saw it happen at Thinks, which was 
a company that makes underwear for women to wear while they're on their period. We saw this happen at Nasty Gal, which was a, like a retailer for women. And then more recently, we've seen it, or I wrote about how it's kind of happening at the wing right now, the yeah. co-working space. And there's been a huge backlash to these companies because there's this kind of irony, I think, happening, or like you're not practicing what you're preaching. So I'm exploring that phenomenon in this piece and saying, yeah, that's going to happen because women, when they become CEOs, act a lot like men when they become CEOs. Well, I, there's so much there's I, I want to talk to you. No, I love it. I love it. And, you know, I do want to first let's start with some of these are younger company startups. And I think this is a valid point that when you're a startup, like you're constantly putting out fires. I mean, that's an element of it. Yeah, definitely. I think when you're a startup, no matter who you are, what you run, what your mission is, you are under a lot of constraints, right? You get a lot of money and you have to grow really quickly. You're learning how to scale something. And I think what they're learning is when you scale, you it's hard to have you know, feminism be your mission that doesn't square with creating a big, successful company. And maybe it shouldn't have to, or like, why would we expect right. that? One of the things that I really took away from this that I thought was such a, in many ways, profound point, and you're dealing with this every day, as we said, running the diversity coverage is there is a distinct difference, and keep me honest here in the in the telling of this, between the benefits of having women on a board or women in management versus diversity. That seems to be at the core of what you're arguing here, right? Yeah. So I think there's this fallacy that we want more women to lead companies because women are more compassionate than men. They're more ethical. They're more moral. They create safer workplaces. And that's just not true. The research has found that's not true. And in fact, that's just another gender stereotype. Um, I talked to a researcher who just put it out there and said, women aren't different than men in the way that they lead. Um, and that's the reality. And the benefits of diversity come not because women are different than men, because they're not that different than men, but because they're diverse in that they are different than the 10 men who are in the room. And that's what we want from diversity. We want a mixture of different types of people, different point of views, to kind of push back on the type of homogenous thinking that leads to bad decisions. Well, and that's exactly it, that one of the things that we're all trying to fight as managers in many ways, is groupthink, right? Exactly. You know, that mm -hmm. you have the same experience. You have a great line uh, in your piece that talks about, you know, 10 white dudes who all went to the same three business schools. They're going to kind of think the same way. And so what you need is this diversity of opinion and experience that doesn't necessarily just mean a different sort of groupthink in a way. Exactly. And I mean, Sally Krawcheck has said, I mean, that's this is one of her lines that she thinks that that kind of groupthink is exactly what led to the financial crisis. And I should note that Wall Street still looks pretty much the same as it did before right. the financial crisis. Right. And so I think, yeah, that's that's the real benefits of diversity. And that's a lot of these companies, these startups are also not diverse. Right. They're just women a lot are hiring of, people that are like themselves, other women. Yes, they have the same experience. They're friends. They hire the people they know. They hire the people in their networks. They often talk about how they hire a lot of women, which is great because 
you know, most companies don't look like that. So their company is going to be diverse in a group of other companies, but it can lead to the same group think. Rebecca, I think this is so important. You and I have had this conversation because I'm very anti like, okay, you have the women's group, you have the LGBTQ community, like separating everybody into groups, like unless we all work together. And really, you know, everything is is together and really think about diversity with all of its different layers. I mean, that's what it's all about, right? That's the goal. Yeah, I mean, I think it can help when you are in a company where you're not part of the majority group to talk to other people about your experiences. Um, That can help you. But I think when everyone's siloed, you're not getting the benefits of someone else having a different perspective. There was a study I talk about in here where it talked, look, you know, there's a body of research going back saying boards with women on them act more ethically. So people have kind of jumped to the conclusion that women are more ethical. But this researcher I talked to said that's not actually what we think is happening. What we think is happening is that somebody's in the room who, again, is seeing things from a different perspective and is pushing back against the group think that makes unethical decisions. Mm -hmm. Or the group, just by having an outside member in it, isn't going to be so bold in doing things that are unethical. They kind of check themselves. And so that's the kind of benefits of diversity that I think we want to see. So one of the things that I think folks might react to when they read this story is this... And we've seen this with Me Too to some extent, sort of the backlash to the backlash, mm. right? And this idea that, all right, well, we're just giving up on women running companies <laughs> now. So that didn't work. So mm-hmm. let's go back uh, to where we were before. Do you worry about that sort of happening in the world? Um, I hope that's not the message that the story is getting of across. Um, men, companies run by men act like this all the time. I can name so many. I mean, there's Uber, there's WeWork, there's lots of companies run by men that have similar problems. So I don't think women are any worse than men. I just think it's a setback for us to set them to this higher standard. Yeah. Because when they don't meet it, then you know, they're penalized even more than men. That's Rebecca Greenfield, who drives our diversity coverage in the magazine. Remarks, provocative remarks in the magazine this week. Yeah, I really liked this because it's a nuanced argument in many ways. Obviously, gender in the workplace, different genders in leadership is much more complicated than just like, hey, let's have more women CEOs. And I think the message here is it's really about good, great leadership, if you will, not whether you're a man or woman running a company. Shares in Lululemon Athletica, man, they have been on quite a tear, almost doubling in the past year. And Jason, you know this story so well. You wrote this story. It's part of a remarkable turnaround. Well, and it is, and it involves private equity. We talk about private equity a lot in the context of those big, well-known names, Blackstone, KKR, Carlisle, Mm -hmm. and whatnot. This is a firm called Advent. They were in it at the beginning. They got out, made a lot of money. Then they went back in in 2014, and they did even better. I sat down exclusively with Advance Managing Partner and Chairman David Musifer, as well as Calvin McDonald. He is the CEO of Lululemon. We caught up at one of the Lulu stores in New York City. How, for lack of a better term, sort of broken was it when you sort of got back in? I mean, I think the business was had its challenges, but at the core, the issue was alignment. And so part of the power that that private equity can bring is that alignment. And so in this case, we had a situation where the founder wasn't aligned with the board and the management team. And so you'd seen some turnover of the senior management. You also didn't have the company uh, in sync 
with the ability to make investments. They were following Wall Street and thinking about what they needed to do that quarter. And so I feel like what we saw as this fundamental opportunity was to help regain that alignment and put the platform in place so that the company could establish a really strategic proposition, not just the here and now, but part of the, the real opportunity is to help them get out of the penny a share game and make some of these investments that had been deferred. Right. I want to get to the moment where, Calvin, you come into the company. You do have a, a series of, of CEOs. Um, so leadership becomes something at the, at the top level that you also have to deal with in, in terms of the, uh, the various issues you have to address. Firstly, we had a situation where the board really was interested, loves this company and wanted to see it succeed. And so in that regard, when we came back in in 2014, we were able to uh, create some of that alignment pretty easily and help create the, um, the ability to uh, put some of these ideas in place, the idea of a longer-term plan. But you're right, I think some of those challenges with the founder made it hard. And so um, at the point that, um, that the founder exited the company in 2015, we were really able to begin assembling a world-class management team. And so uh, with a CFO uh, who initially was Stuart, now COO, and then uh, talent uh, along the way leading to uh, people like Glenn and Calvin and Sun and a host of really world-class business leaders. And the exciting part is that this business had that potential. It just needed the opportunity. And the, the framework from this point and beyond, it really feels like the business is just getting started. At that moment where you, where you do start to dig in, Calvin, I mean, what's What's the opportunity do you see to sort of take it to the next level? So for me, the first assessment was, is there an opportunity here to be even more than what Lululemon is, not just within North America, but internationally? Uh, and I think the clear resounding answer is absolutely. I mean, the vision we have today is to ignite a community of people to live the sweat life. Uh, and we're gonna express that, not just through incredible product that we'll keep developing, because there's so much opportunity and white space for us to develop into, but also through our strategy of events uh, and what we do with our GROW initiatives. And seeing what Calvin and the team have already done with the manifestation of this, some of this next step vision in Chicago, and with the membership and loyalty program, you already are beginning to see some of the seeds of thinking about what the broader vision might look like. And so what does that look like going forward? Because it does feel like we're at a very interesting moment in the world of retail. We have a huge runway of growth. Um, not only is our women's business continuing to grow at double digit with a lot of growth opportunity being entering into new categories, or we mentioned to and from OTC that doesn't even really in our women's uh, category uh, exist. 
uh, and into our OmniGuest experience with our digital platform. And as good as we are, there's a ton of opportunity to do even more. This is an emotional uh, brand, and our online continues to be more transactional. And then finally, you know, expanding into markets. We still have a lot of opportunity in North America, not to mention what's happening internationally and in uh, Europe as well as in China. We feel we're early innings in everything we're trying to create. And that's Advent Managing Partner and Chairman David Musifer and Calvin McDonald, Lululemon's CEO. We caught up at a store here in New York City. Listen, it's a remarkable tale, candidly, that had not been told before. The stock, obviously anybody who's watching it has seen it rise, but the money behind it, what it took to fix it, that's a whole different story. I think this is a great business school case study, right, of a company that was had done so well, had some problems, and really came back. And it, you can look at it at so many different levels. Well, and it's a well-known brand and yeah, one that totally. people really keep an eye on, both for trend setting, but also for investors. Privacy issues in big tech, it is definitely one of the big themes of 2019. A feature story this week about how Silicon Valley's biggest companies, Jason, fooled millions of people into letting temp workers listen in on their most intimate moments. I'm creeped out. It is a must read for sure. Mm -hmm. It's the cover story this week. And actually, you got to just look at the cover and you're going to be really creeped out. You're going to be really (laughs) creeped out, but you're going to want to know more. Austin Carr is here to do just that to tell us more about it. All right, take us back. Because this is really about a device or a series of devices Mm -hmm. that so many of us have in our homes, and they're listening. Totally. I mean, this is really a big story about how these devices like Amazon Echo and their virtual assistant Alexa, or if you use Apple Siri or Google Assistant, what have you, if you have these devices in your home or on your phone... This is a story about how these whole uh, all these things work. And I think they these companies, these tech companies in Silicon Valley presented these products as sort of automated. They were sort of using machine learning and computers to answer our every voice command. And it turns out there's actually a vast apparatus of human listeners who are helping to improve these services. When voice commands are submitted to their servers, in some cases they're actually rerouted to uh, data centers where humans are actually transcribing your every word in order to improve the speech recognition on these services. Yeah, I think there definitely was an assumption that there's just some little robot that's like listening and then spitting things back at me. So tell me about these humans. I mean, what kind of conversations are they listening to? What are they hearing? Because um, you guys you guys talk yeah. to a lot of people for this We story. talked to dozens and dozens of yeah. contractors, and, and these are people who are uh, placed everywhere from Ireland to India. Um, in the case of Apple, they relied on a, uh, a, a IT firm in Cork, Ireland, yeah. uh, where just you know, dozens and dozens of contractors will be listening in on people's recordings. And, and they told us that they felt deeply uncomfortable listening to this material. Often it was very uh, very personal information. They were called children in many instances, sharing personal inf- information like phone numbers or street addresses, which you can imagine mm-hmm. uh, parents' concern over that. They overheard couples having sexual, engaging in sexual activity, uh, very private conversations in your kitchen and bedroom. So, so really, the, the, the most sort of alarming thing is just how invasive this is and the fact that uh, the people on the front lines of this behavior doing this work, who are often the most low-paid workers in, in this supply chain, uh, they found it very alarming and, and, and emotionally unethical. So what do the companies say? Because mm-hmm. this has been a story that you guys have been following really through the course of the year. And as Carol said, it probably is one of the defining stories in many ways of 2019. Broadly speaking, yeah. the discomfort that we're starting to have with the relationship 
with technology. What did the companies say? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you asked about that because one of the most profound things for us was the disparity between what the contractors were telling us in terms of them feeling very uh, that this was very morally dubious versus what the, the tech engineers and executives were telling us. When we started reporting this, it was almost like they didn't think this was a big deal. They right. just didn't anticipate it. They, they would argue this was very par for the course in the industry. Essentially, everyone's doing it. Um, they said that this is just really a way of fixing what they called quality assurance issues. They described it as similar to you know when your your app crashes on your Mac, you, you get the option to right, opt in. Right. If you want to report this bug, they just described it as a quote voice bug. Um, at a broader level, they they also say that hey, just FYI, these systems are only recording when you activate them, and the the vast majority of voice commands are actually handled by computers with just a small uh, number of them needing uh, human input. Input now whether or not that makes you mo- feel more comfortable about using these services, there's no doubt that millions and millions of recordings are still being transcribed by humans. All right. And I'm not going to excuse the companies, but what's the transparency like when you sign up for things? Is it yep. in there in the fine print somewhere that this might happen? Uh, originally not. I mean, they, okay. they very broadly um, sort of said, you know, this could be used to improve these services. Apple might use it to improve or enhance Siri, for example. But it didn't explicitly say that humans might be listening. And I think that was a, a major oversight, if not an intentional one. Uh, a lot of the companies that we talked to said that, that their sort of stance on this for the past years, especially in the case of Apple or Amazon, was sort of to um, inform, not alarm. In other words, if they did disclose that in their terms and conditions, they might have turned off users yeah. from using these products in the first place. Because, and, and I'm glad you you put it in that way, because in a lot of cases, you know, we all call people, you know, and we get that, or, or you know, when we call for customer services, something they say, this call may be recorded for quality right. assurance. Yeah. It feels like they were just sort of putting it into that bucket. But that feels, when that happens, pretty voluntary. And and by the way, you know you're having a business conversation of some sort, even if you're talking about your bank account or right, whatever, right. Y- yeah. you're kind of okay with it. And it's very clear. Uh, to Carol's point, this seems not quite on the no, up and not, up. Not clear. Um, and also the other issue is that uh, these devices often are triggered accidentally. Yes. Um, it, you know, my, my fiance, for example, her name is Alexis. So you can imagine that the Amazon Echo we have in our home is triggered quite frequently and inadvertently. Now for everyone listening to this or watching <laughs> it on TV, their like, Amazon Echo just went off. Yeah, yeah, so. exactly. exactly. I, I apologize Austin, for that. she's going to have to change her name. <laughs> yeah. no, one of us will. Yeah, I, put I, not the Echo. There. but, um, but uh, Or, okay, Google. Or if you say, yeah. hey, Siri, there's many ways that these can be accidentally triggered. And one of the things that the contractors kept saying to us was, hey, you know what? We heard so many instances where the recording coming through, it was so clear that the users had no idea. Um, And and what they found most alarming wasn't the more provocative ones, but it was actually the most mundane. Just, you know, uh, one contractor described an instance of just a father and son having a a conversation after school and how that it can feel so invasive. You know, they they have no business recording this material and let alone transcribing it. Did these workers know what they were going to be doing when they were hired exactly? It it was unclear. At the the early days, some did not. I think it became clear what they were doing as they were... uh, uh, going along. But I, I will just say these are, you know, not the highest paid workers. Right. And uh, as I said before, this is emotionally taxing labor. Yeah. Um, so when they're doing this firsthand, I, I think they're realizing as they're going along, wait a minute, do I feel comfortable with this? Some people compared it to sort of 1984. Another person said this has felt like the Tower of Babel in a way. Um, but at the same time, you know, these aren't the folks that are necessarily on the highest part of the food chain here. They, right. they can't just sort of rebel and, and push back. Uh, they did express concerns to managers and they, they, some of them just said that they were unreceptive. They said transcribe everything that 
comes through. So let me ask you this. I mean, again, you guys have been following this so closely, and, and I know, Austin, mm-hmm. you look across the, the tech sphere, often sent to the furthest corners of the world to uh, explore this. <laughs> Where do you think we are sort of in, in this moment of questioning almost existentially our relationship with tech companies. This feels right at the heart of that. What do you think happens next? You know, I think this is one of the biggest tests that we've seen of the Silicon Valley in the last couple of years. They just went through years and years of the most severe scrutiny from Washington, um, all these concerns about everything from Cambridge Analytica to the 2016 elections to, you know, how much data they're mining from our every click and internet browsing habits. And even after all that, they still seem oblivious to the fact that there was something wrong with setting up a vast apparatus of human listeners that could legitimately hear the things that we were saying inside of our home. If the government does this, we'd be appalled. We, we well, absolutely when the government would. does this, I think this, that, that's appalled. a very, uh, especially when you consider that Xiaomi, Baidu, Alibaba yeah. are turning out uh, roughly 3 million smart speakers per quarter. Uh, one could imagine uh, China not being so scrupulous about right. what they could listen into. And we haven't fa- uncovered evidence of that, but there's no doubt that these these devices can be hacked, you know? And uh, I think that's a major concern and that one that uh, was just a bit naive for tech company not to think where it was there. And yet, I've got one, you've got them, yeah. you've got them, right? Yeah. I mean, the American public, I mean, there's a a stat in here by 2023, there'll be 8 billion voice control devices out there, one for every person on earth. I mean, so people yep. are buying up. We love the convenience. We do. Is we, it, we're, we are it. we willing to give up? Are we, are we getting to that point where we're, okay, I'll give up my privacy for this? Uh, you know, th- there's actually a term for that, which is the sort of, uh, it's sort of like analysis paralysis. There's just mm-hmm. so much privacy concerns and these things are so integrated with our lives. It's hard to give them up. A Pew Research uh, study uh, actually found that about 60% of, uh, of cus- Americans yeah. um, are very concerned with data privacy when it comes to smart speakers. At the same time, one fourth of all the U.S. public owns them. Uh, so there's this 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 really uh, harsh disparity between yeah our concerns for privacy and the fact that we just you know what eh, we're just going to give up and own a smartphone, own an Amazon Echo, and so forth. Yeah. It's, right. it's uh it's a sign that customers don't know how to protect themselves. Are the companies changing anything in terms of with this pushback and the more that you guys and others report on all of this? Yeah, they, they they have indeed. Um, you know, a lot of these companies said that they didn't do good enough disclosing these terms to their customers. Uh, they've introduced new disclaimers in their privacy policies, uh, more opt-in features for certain services. Uh, and Google has said that for Google Assistant, they're actually pausing human transcription, uh, but although they did decline to comment on whether they were collecting voice data in other ways, which is uh, interesting. Uh, but I, th- I think you know it's very clear at this juncture that they did not do enough for the past seven or eight years. Yeah. And especially for a company like Apple, Tim Cook has been out there saying privacy yes. is a human right. How do they get this wrong? How did they just uh, obliviously build this 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 large uh, sort of group of people who are listening in on people's conversations. I, I feel like that just goes against their their core values. Feels Absolutely. And you do wonder how oblivious they actually were in many ways. That's Austin Carr. Great story. We all have these home devices. We think that nobody's listening, but this story shows you that folks are, actual humans are. Well, and this is really the latest installment in a series of stories yes. that the tech team has been doing that has really sort of brought this to light. And one of the things that I find most interesting and candidly troubling is most most people read this and say, whoa, I didn't know that was going on. And the tech companies, when confronted with this, essentially are like, yeah, cool. I mean, we're just trying to like make the product better. What's the deal? Yeah, we'll see if this changes in 2020, especially with Washington watching very closely what these tech companies are up to. 
This holiday season will be the first for the Apple Card, the highest profile new credit card in years. And it's pretty exciting for Apple, Jason. Absolutely. And for people who are using it, they yes, seem to be cool. big fans. It's like the sexy new card uh, to have. <laughs> but retailers maybe not so excited because no. it's in that category where they have to pay more. Jenny Serene here with us in New York City to explain the twists and turns of this story are fascinating. Huh. Tell us about the heat on the retail side of this. Basically, Visa and MasterCard have several different tiers. And so they have their kind of basic credit cards that maybe don't have a ton of rewards. The next step up for Visa, it's called Visa Signature. For MasterCard, it's MasterCard World. Um, and then they have that kind of premium, premium tier. It's We're the most We're constantly expensive. being ranked in society. Yes, we are. Yes, we are. This is no different. Um, <laughs> and, and so for for Visa, it's called Visa Infinite. For MasterCard, it's called MasterCard World Elite. And every time you swipe a Visa Infinite or a MasterCard World Elite card, it costs the retailer a little bit more in swipe fees. Um, and basically, it's been years and years of kind of this huge rewards war that's gone on between banks. And so more and more consumers are showing up at the point of sale with these cards. And retailers are like, we've had enough. Um, and they're just ready to kind of, you know, take this to Visa and MasterCard and say, we're And here comes done. Apple. Right. Joining the party. And here comes Apple. It's an this, elite card. It's a very elite card. Um, it's the MasterCard World Elite. And um, yeah, it's a, it's expensive for retailers. It's, you know, had this huge high profile launch. Uh, we saw, I think it was 10 billion in lines extended to consumers in that kind of first month that it was out. So very popular card. Um, and retailers are just like, this is, you know, just another time, another thing that we have to kind of spend money on. And, and you know, yeah, to you guys' point, it's holiday season. Um, they're trying their best to compete against the Amazons of the world. And this is kind of one more thing in the, the negative bucket. Well, when we talked about this story on our radio show, our daily radio show during the week, like I think both of us were like, oh yeah, I didn't realize that there was this incredible tiers in terms of designations for credit cards, right? Yeah. Um, and they come with them different fees in terms of what the merchants pay. But the elite cards, the assumption is, all right, this is somebody who probably makes more money and they're going to spend more. So sorry, merchant, you're going to pay a little bit more. Yeah. So the but you'll win in the end, kind of is the thinking. And that I think has historically been what Visa and MasterCard and the big banks say to the merchants when they complain about this. They say, look, these people people come in, they have way more buying power. They're usually, um, their average ticket sizes are much bigger than mm -hmm. the, the ticket sizes for those more basic credit cards. Um, and so that's been kind of the justification over the years. Now, retailers have started to come back and say, well, look, if I'm a gas station or if I'm a grocer, people with these high rewards credit cards, they're not actually spending more on groceries. They're not spending more on gas because they have these rewards. <laughs> and so the, those kinds of retailers are just like, look, we've reached our breaking point. Our margins are thin already. We need a break here. Right. Because this can really essentially eliminate or really dramatically shrink the margin, especially when you're talking mm. about grocery or other places where that margin is already so thin. Yeah, for sure. And so it's, um, I mean, grocery is kind of the, the biggest example. And we actually saw the country's largest grocer, Kroger, take a really harsh stance on this earlier this year. Um, or last year, they actually banned certain uh, Visa card, they banned all Visa credit cards from certain stores. Um, and so you, you're seeing more and more take that stance now. Visa and Kroger, they've reached an agreement. Uh, Kroger is now accepting Visa in all of its stores. But I think this is something we're going to see more and more of. For grocers and, and retailers in general just really feeling this pinch. The other tricky side to this is that, okay, so these credit cards, they have different levels, d different designations, right? And as a merchant, you can't say, okay, I'm just going to take the lower tier. You either take it all or you take none, right? Yeah. yeah so that's the big sticking point right now. Um, the rule is actually 
actually called honor all cards. So if you take one Visa credit card, you have to take them all. Yeah. And merchants hate that rule. They say, you know, we should be able to say we're okay with taking these basic credit cards, but we're not really willing to take these more premium high-end cards. Um, but Visa makes that a rule of kind of accepting any of their cards, MasterCard as well. Um, and in 2005, the merchants actually, it's been this, it's been 14 years, <laughs> yeah. merchants actually took this to court. Um, and it's been kind of rumbling around in the courts ever since. Um, and it kind of remains a sticking point in negotiations for settling that case. Well, and I think we were talking about this as well. I mean, historically, this has been an issue with American Express too, because yes. their rates have tended to be higher than Visa and MasterCard, right? Yeah. Well, so it's interesting, actually, as we've seen this kind of profusion of these elite cards on the Visa and MasterCard networks, those rates have actually come much more in line. So it's no longer, and you know, Mas- or Amex has actually come down a lot too. So it's actually no longer that much more for a merchant to- Because back know. in the day, that was the thing. I mean, I yeah. remember there were yeah. a lot of places, but right. full disclosure, my aunt worked it. in American Express for many years. And I remember it was such a thing because we would go to places and they wouldn't take the card as they called it. And it was, and the merchant or the restaurant or whoever it was would say, listen, the fees are higher for me. This is mm-hmm. why I'm not doing it. Yep. And so that's, um, it's actually, it's, it's strange how, you know, between Amex coming down and Visa and MasterCard coming up, it's a lot, um, a lot closer in terms of the rates that merchants are paying. And so you've seen that in the acceptance, you know, Amex has accepted, accepted at almost as many yes. places as Visa and MasterCard these days. So where's the, all of this going? Cause what's interesting is we have a ton of in, uh, guests on, on our show, our daily radio show, where I think they say we like Visa, we like MasterCard because they're processing so many yeah. transactions and, you know, they get a little piece of all of them, but there's so many going on. But I am curious, you know, so they're doing okay. Yeah. <laughs> so where's all of this going? It's hard to bet against Visa and MasterCard. I mean, they are yeah. just, they're so ubiquitous. They are part of every transaction. Um, so it's hard to bet against them. I mean, I do think that merchants, um, you know, they're starting to kind of really coalesce around this honor all cards thing. So we could, it's, it's so hard to guess how it could turn out, but mm-hmm. we could see a future where maybe if they went out on this honor all cards rule going away, uh, where you show up and at the checkout, they say, we'll take your basic Visa card, but we're not going to take that high end card. And that's Jenny Serene. We're pretty sure she never sleeps (laughs) because she's so incredibly prolific. And this story, I feel like, is going to be, we say this about a lot of things, a very 2019 story. Goldman, Apple getting together, and it's a little trickier than maybe they anticipated. Well, this holiday season, the first for the Apple card, and I've got to say, when this story came out on the Bloomberg Terminal, it was among the most read. So everybody was checking it out. The Department of Defense has stepped up its scrutiny of Chinese-Americans amid growing distrust between the two nations and, Jason, as a result, ensnaring undeserving individuals. This story is a troubling one. It is very troubling, and the details, as you get into them, Mm -hmm. really take you places you don't expect to go. Peter Waldman, one of our projects and investigations reporters, he wrote the piece. It's in this week's Business Week. Peter joins us from San Francisco. So, Peter, tell us what you found. So basically, this is a continuation of work I've been doing all year long on the whole question of whether or not we are overreacting in this country to the threat of Chinese espionage and specifically the threat of um, theft of intellectual property. Uh, This week's Business Week story is about an army engineer uh, who was harassed essentially by the FBI and military intelligence from the army. This is a civilian engineer, by the way. Um, And ultimately, 
his security clearance was taken away after over 20 years of stellar performance, including developing um, a software system that the NSA uses for communications and eavesdropping and things like that. And uh, this stellar scientist um, lost a security clearance, which essentially forced him to retire. Now, he was of retirement age. It wasn't the biggest body blow, but he was humiliated, and he was accused of disloyalty, and he had lots of ties, friends, neighbors, who were asked uh, many times if he was a spy for China. Uh, he is a Chinese-American individual, and he suffered uh, a great deal as a result of this. I can tell you the end of the story, which essentially is that um, ultimately the Pentagon decided he was not a spy and was innocent of their suspicions. So uh, it's kind of a sad story. Well, and so this individual, Wei Su, I guess the question is, and this goes to how you kicked it off, Peter, you know, are we overreacting? Is this an isolated incident, you know, where folks like Wei Su are being targeted um, in a wrong way, or are we seeing a lot of that happening? So perhaps both. It's hard to say whether the thousands of Chinese-American individuals who've come under suspicion for espionage in some form or another, maybe it's uh, exporting materials to China that are on some uh, list of, of stuff that's not supposed to go to certain entities, the so-called entities list, uh, or outright theft of intellectual property, and even worse, espionage on government secrets. So there are legitimate cases. There's no question that China is overreaching, that, mm -hmm. that China on their part has come to make demands and expectations of overseas Chinese um, to work for the motherland when called upon, and that's kind of put a target on people's backs. But in terms of what's happened on this side of the Pacific, the distrust level, and that's the real key word, I think, in this story. The level of distrust of Chinese Americans has just soared in recent years. And a colleague in the Bloomberg Data Analytics Department, uh, Andre Tartar, uh, did a, an enormous job of filtering, analyzing some 26,000 cases in a government database of security clearance decisions. Who gets it? Who doesn't? And he found that in the past decade, the rate of rejections of Chinese Americans, essentially, um, for security clearances has gone from something like 44%, which was the average of all uh, countries, including other non-Chinese countries, uh, to uh, over 60% for Chinese. So. Uh, it's a real uh, growth in the rate of rejection for that, which is a kind of barometer of suspicion, distrust, and essentially difficulty for these American citizens. And I love the perspective that you include in your story, Peter, because you say even people with ties to nations like Iran or Russia, they fare better than those with ties to China. Yeah, the data showed that uh, they went from rates of 50 to 65 percent or so in the prior decade, from 2000 to 2009. They dropped both below 50 percent in terms of the rejection rate, and the rate of rejection for people with ties to China went from that 44 percent average for everyone all the way up to 61 percent.
Well, and Peter, you provide some really nice details in this story. And I have to say, much of it is cinematic in a lot mm-hmm. of ways, these interrogations, yeah. but also the rulings that have come down. One ruling specifically that repeatedly uses the term coercion. Tell us how that plays into the suspicion and sort of the overall narrative. So what we are talking about there are the guidelines, the federal guidelines for trustworthiness, essentially, who should get a security clearance. And two of the guidelines include categories called foreign preference and foreign influence. And under those guidelines, um, you essentially, if you have ties of one sort or another, family members, parents, financial ties, you may own property in another country, which many Chinese immigrants to this country do, particularly relatives, um, it can disqualify you just on its face for a security clearance. And the basis of that concern on the part of, the, in this case, the Pentagon, is that you would then be subject to coercion by Chinese agents, Chinese intelligence, who could perhaps go to your family members and say, well, you want your pension? You Hmm. want uh, your salary this month? Well, you're going to have to get your relative Joe living in New York or Texas uh, to spy for us. Otherwise, you know, forget your pension for the next year. So that's what's meant by coercion. There was another Pentagon study, a 2017 study by a branch of the Pentagon that does nothing but study espionage and questions of trustworthiness. And they reviewed all 209 cases since 1947 of espionage and espionage-related convictions, including economic espionage. And they found that since 1980, there have been something like 140 convictions for espionage. Not a single one has had coercion as a main motivator of espionage. So it's perhaps a myth that that could happen. Now, it's logical, but it just Mm. hasn't happened. That's Peter Waldman, Bloomberg News Projects and Investigation reporter, joining us uh, to talk about that story. And I think about the implications because of these heightened trade tensions and really just heightened tensions overall between the U.S. and China and Chinese Americans, they're getting caught in it. They absolutely are. And again, sort of like the story we were talking about as it related to the listening devices, this is essentially the latest in a series of stories that Peter Waldman has been working Mm -hmm. on. It's about how this tense relationship between the U.S. and China is playing out in maybe some unexpected ways. All right, if you know that music, you know what it's all about. Because for almost a century, uh, you've been hearing songs like that, the Radio City Rockettes. They've been part of the American landscape and, of course, of holiday traditions. A new holiday season underway. Helping to kick it off, two Rockettes joining us in studio, Alyssa Lemons and Joanna Richardson. They are in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. I have to be quite honest. Jason knows, too. I'm like, guess who's coming to the Rockettes? (laughs) So, Joanna, tell us a little bit about what's new and different this year. I remember when some of your colleagues were here last year, there was a new finale. What are what can people expect this year? Well, we are so excited for this uh, this season of the Christmas Spectacular. Each year, our creative team tries to re-event the show in some way to make it more exciting for audiences that come back year after year. This year, if it's possible, we've made the finale even more impressive. Mm-hmm. Um, the 
finale number was introduced last year, and then this year we've really focused on the choreography, the dazzling costumes that the Rockettes perform in, and then also the Rockettes have a really impressive entrance to the number. I won't ruin it. If you haven't seen the show yet, you'll just have to come and see it, but it is so exciting, and I feel like the Christmas Spectacular is one of those traditions that families can come to year after year. It's a different experience every time you come, if you're sitting um, even in the same seats in the house. We have such high energy uh, dance numbers and choreography. There's mapping that's done on on the ceiling. There's something new to experience every time you see the show. Joanne and Alyssa, what I wanted to bring in, and I I went a a few times, um, certainly when my daughter was younger and stuff, and it really is quite an experience. And there are, what's really great about it is that there's certain traditions that come back every year, but you guys have increasingly embraced technology over the years. So talk to us a little bit about what we can see on that front, because I do feel like, right, the world, everybody's embracing technology. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I think that's what's great about the Christmas Spectacular is it is that perfect balance of that holiday tradition with still all this new technology that we get in every year. Um, as Joe was mentioning, we have projections over all um, the walls in Radio right. City Music Hall. So it used to just be like the first three proscenium's, the archways in the theater, but now it goes all the way back to the back of the house. So every seat is getting that full experience and really sucks the audience into each number. They're in Central Park with us. They're in Times Square with us for numbers. So right, you really right. get taken. It's really that immersive, with right? Us. In Absolutely. that way. And. You know, Joanna, Carol mentioned uh, at the top of the conversation, I mean, this is a quintessentially sort of New York thing. Totally. And you guys appear not only in Radio City Music Hall, obviously for this show, but you're at the parade. Uh, you guys, I believe, participated in the World Pride events uh, this year. So, I mean, this mm-hmm. is something that is is very New York. What is it that sort of connects you to New York other than uh, 100 years of, of <laughs> history? Of course, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the Rockets first started performing at Radio City Music Hall in 1933. We perform in one of the most iconic theaters in Radio City. It's truly an experience from the moment you walk in the door, especially at Christmas. The decorations are drenching the theater. And just from the moment you walk in the door, just the vibe of the theater, you can meet Santa, you can meet a Rockette. We have two live organs that are playing pre-show. And I feel like the Rockettes especially are such an um, iconic staple in New York city they represent um poise grace and an athleticism um for an all-female dance company right and i definitely grew up watching the rockets perform and i was so inspired by these women coming together from all different walks of life but it's the true epitome of teamwork what we do on stage is not about one particular dancer it's about all all 36 of us on stage and I just think that's so incredible to be a part of well talk to us a little bit about your trek there I mean um Joanna where are you from originally I'm from Atlanta I live in Colorado right now Uh, Uh, and Alyssa where are you from I'm actually from Dallas Texas but I live here now so tell us how long so how long have you been dancing with the Rockets my sixth year your sixth year and Joanna this is my 14th season so okay so let me start with you I mean that's a long time to be there's a lot that's changed also the role of women and women in our society how we're looked at but I'm just curious about your road to coming to here. What was it like? How hard was it? Yeah, so I grew up in Atlanta. I trained at my mom's dance studio, and um, it was really important growing up in dance that we had a well-rounded training in ballet, tap, jazz, just so you're a versatile performer and um, that's one thing that I loved about the racket so much is it's not just about one style it is about the technique of ballet 
tap, jazz, the flexibility and strength to be able to do those eye-high kicks, which we do over 300 per show, up to four shows a day. So the athleticism also was so inspiring. Right. And um, I remember watching the Rockets perform in the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. I finally saw them perform live, and I had tears in my eyes, and I knew I needed to be up on that stage. And actually took me four auditions before I was actually cast. So I went back you know, each time learned something new, learned there was something that I needed to work on. And came back. Yeah, and my perseverance paid off and 14 years later, I'm still performing (laughs) in my dream job. And that's Alyssa Lemons and Joanna Richardson, two Radio City Rockettes. They stopped by our studio. Really fun to catch up with them. Nice tradition. Oh, it's always the start of the holiday season when the Rockettes stop by. In Pursuits this week, we love catching up with Chris Rouser. And, you know, we've had our gift guide yes, and we know we what to buy. I think you have a lot of ideas about what to buy for me. Long list. Which is fantastic. Very high end. Very high end. I'm working That's on all it. I'm all right, Kelly. good. Uh, but also, this is the season about giving back. Exactly. Uh, and we've got a guide and some insights into how some very wealthy folks are doing that. Maybe some tips for the rest of us. Chris is here with us in New York City. How's it going? Good. Very well. Um, this is one of our favorite sections of the year, our annual philanthropy special section, because it makes us feel better about all of the really <laughs> expensive things that we tell you to do for the rest of the There's year. what else you could have done with yeah, your money. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, because I think, you know, philanthropy for our audience is a, is a very big part of how, of their mm-hmm. pursuits, of, sure. of what they do outside of work. And so we we always want to like take a look at it. And this year we wanted to look at it from uh, the perspective of just like a lot of data and like looking at, uh, you know, facts, numbers, and people who look at philanthropy from like a really sort of technical lens. Well, tell us about the Arnolds. I had never heard of this couple. I'm they're fascinated billi- by them. They're billionaires, but they're <clears throat> showing you maybe how to be a better billionaire. Yeah. So they're, the Arnolds were very, very private um, until I think this year, basically. They um, uh, they made their money uh, first through Enron and then through Centaurus and um, John Arnold was sort of a legendary energy trader. And then uh, his wife is also like a super high powered mergers and acquisitions lawyer. Uh, and they, you know, they're on the Bloomberg Billionaires Index. They've got a couple billion dollars of their own. And then they have a couple billion with their foundation. And basically they uh, have, they've sort of set out to reform uh, criminal justice, um, also the pharmaceutical industry. And they do it by doing a ton of research. And they're not liberal and they're not conservative, or they try not to be. Uh, and they just do do studies until they find the inequalities that are out in the system. Hence the data, right? They're data-driven in terms of what they're going after and and maybe their approach. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so they hire experts um, and they really don't go after something, you know, it's really important if you have that kind of money that you can't just try to address everything that someone asks you to address. Um, So they've picked the things that they focus on and through studies, they're like really obsessed with data. So they did this thing one time where they they redid a hundred different studies from psychology Psychological journals to see if they could be reproduced, and only forty percent of them could. Hmm. Right, so they're like really testing theses all throughout this, and 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 one of the things that they're focused on is criminal justice reform and bail and parole, and they. Um, and they think that the the criminal justice system is one of the organiz- one of the systems that knows the least about itself, and so they're trying to get some visibility into that. Well, and there are some lessons for us mere mortals when it <laughs> comes to our own giving, and mm-hmm. part of it is really know what you're giving to, and also focus up a little bit. And you don't have to give to everyone who asks you for money. You need to sort of put a theme and some parameters around it. Yeah. So the critic this week is about uh, all these these books that came out this year on philanthropy and. Admit it, like you don't really probably want to read a bunch of books on <laughs> philanthropy. So we did it for you. And Thank um, you. yeah, and you know, one of the main takeaways is like really look at why you're giving. And so there's this one book that we uh, looked at called The Ethics of Giving, which basically 
he says like, okay, you want to do good, but why? And then mm. if you if you explore the philosophical reasons for why you want to do things, it actually can help you get to what you should be doing with your money. Um, and then, you know, there's so much technology now out there that can help you measure uh, the impact of your gift that you can really see how like how much good you're doing and you can also coordinate with other people you know you can see how your the good that you're doing or your your money interfaces with other people's money right. and really make the most of it well you talked about data before but there's also a book that is looking at kind of what the technology titans are doing right in many ways in silicon yeah. valley and how they're disrupting the world but again using data in many ways yeah exactly yeah. um and you know we, there's even some tips in there to like how how to get your kids interested in philanthropy right. so I like that you know um every year on the holidays make sure they give away three toys or uh split up the money into you know if, you, if they get an allowance they split it up to like for themselves uh for saving for the future and then to give to a nonprofit so they get it in their minds early Right. I do love what you said about, you know, that these guys are saying, whether it's the books or whether it's the Arnold's, like, don't just give because you've been asked, right? You've got yeah. to kind of do some homework mm-hmm. here. Because then you're not smart engaged about it. also. Like, the more you know about what you're doing, right. the more you're engaged and the more you care about outcomes and the more you're likely to keep coming back. Sometimes people think you should just spread around your giving, because especially if you have a lot of money, people might think like, oh, we don't want this nonprofit to become dependent on us. But you wouldn't stop going to a restaurant that you liked because right. you didn't want it to That's become right. dependent on you, right? right? So, like, you really do want to be engaged. Yeah, well, and I this whole that. notion of philanthropy as R&D that the Arnolds have put out really does, as you say, sort of engage you on a deeper level. And mm-hmm. if you know the numbers, you're more likely to go along. All right. So it's all about giving back. Tell us about the founder of Burt's Bees, because it sounds like uh, this individual is giving back. Yes. Yeah, so this is close to my heart because I'm from Maine. Um, so Roxanne Quimby is a woman who co-founded Bar- uh, Burt's Bees. Uh, and that company over the years has been sold. So she had a lot of money that, uh, that sort of she came into. And she started buying up land in Maine and in other states. And she eventually... Eventually accumulated 87,000 acres in Maine around Mount Katahdin, which is sort of in the center of the state. There's a lot of national parks there. And she wanted it to turn into a national park. But the governor of Maine um, was uh, like a very uh, conservative Republican who didn't want her to. So it was this long battle. where she actually sort of started off being like the locals in the area were against her because the paper companies had sold her the land. Right. And that was sort of the lifestyle up there. I mean, it sort of still is a big part of the right. main lifestyle. And she didn't want people to go um, hunting or snow machining in the woods and like that. Forget it. If you're yeah. in Maine, like you have exactly. people have to be able to hunt on your land. You have to have snow machine. So eventually she handed it uh, like the, the project over her son, who was like a little more charming and who went around and had coffee with people and they waited out the governor until he left. Um, and so they actually got Obama to make it into a national monument, which is not the same as a national park, but they're functionally very similar. Right. Um, and so now there's this amazing, huge amount of wilderness in the center of Maine. And uh, nice. they, uh, they, the old governor wouldn't let them put signs up to it. So you couldn't find it. And now they can. And right. so now people are just beginning to use it. It's really cool. And it does feel a little bit like a potential model elsewhere because mm-hmm. people really are starting to invest as it were or to try and give money around nature in, yeah. in some ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Well, let's talk about um, another thing that I think is is doing good, if you will, and that is the kind of rise in wildlife tourism. But it's not like maybe it used to be, right? It's really changing. There's one company in particular that's yeah. playing a big role in this. Yeah, so Airbnb actually recently announced um, their animal experiences, which is which is actually something they've been doing for a while, but they're, they're now uh, making it a big focus. And what it is is like a thousand experiences where you can go and either interact directly with animals, domesticated animals, or you can right. look at and watch wild animals. And they, um, Airbnb, 
started working with an organization called World Animal Protection to make it, to make sure they're being really ethical about these experiences and also using them to teach people about conservation and the ethical treatment of animals. This is so important. And it's hard. I mean, it's hard yes. to do. And I mean, it was interesting, too, in, in reading Nikki Eckstein's story about how difficult it is. A, to identify, and B, to sort of keep people honest about it because Mm -hmm. they can easily sort of slip, especially as you go into more and more remote places. You really have to be able to vet, and it's not easy. Yeah, and, you know, I think a lot of people people don't know that the the experience that they're having is maybe damaging to wildlife. So, you know, Airbnb now won't do anything where marine animals are kept in captivity. So that's no dolphin experiences, you know. And you might not even think that, you know, when you're, I don't know, in Mexico playing with dolphins that that's a negative experience, but it could potentially be. And Airbnb has to be very vigilant about it. And it's a big commitment for them, and that's meaningful. I think it's really important. It's really educating people um, and letting animals be in kind of their natural environment. But I just have to say, I love one of the pictures. I want to have tea cakes with a sheep. I know. <laughs> yes, <laughs> there's one experience where you are allowed to interact with the animals. Is in Scotland, you can have tea, and uh, a very rude sheep will, named Hamish will come up and have tea with you. I yeah, am so in cute. on that. When I saw that picture, I, I was reminded that there's a fine line between like cute and slightly creepy. No, yes. that's so cute. It's very much divided people. That's yeah. Yeah. No, I love it. I love it. I love it. Yeah. Hey, one last thing. Um, speaking of, you know, kind of taking care of things and preserving them, there's a little section in Pursuits this week about Venice. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, Venice. Different ways to put your money to work there, right? Had Venice had its highest Aqua Alta yeah. in, since 1966 this year, last month, actually. And um, it really did some serious damage, not only because water places were flooded, but the force of the waters actually right. moved some stonework. Um, and so Save Venice, which is a great organization which has been working to save the treasures of Venice uh, since after that first 1966 flood, um, worked with us to sort of explain what they spend money on if you give money to them. So you can, uh, $500 will get you a day's work from a conservator who, like an expert, not just like Amazing. a cleaning person who yeah. goes in uh, and figures out the issues. And then for $1.1 million, you can uh, renovate a whole uh, basilica. And wow. there's sort of like everything in between. And there's, you know, obviously Titian paintings. Yeah. Um, there's, you know, um, old uh, mansions that have been damaged. So there's a lot you can do and the money is is like ready to be spent. Right. Yeah. It's interesting, too. You know, this has been a, an area of philanthropy where a lot of interesting people have sort of gotten behind it, just given how important mm-hmm. that city is. And in the Absolutely. history of the world, I remember the, the late Alex Navab, a longtime private equity guy. Mm-hmm. He was very committed uh, to that as well. It's important. Our, our own Kathleen Hayes just came back from Venice, she and she was talking about just the absolute grandeur of the place. And you do worry about some of that going away. Yeah, the architect Peter Marino has also been really big on that. That's the editor of the Pursuit section, Chris Rouser. And that wraps up the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Be sure to tune into Bloomberg Business Week Radio live Monday through Friday, starting at 2 p.m. Wall Street time. And if you can't catch us live, get our daily podcast for the ride home. Check that out at Bloomberg.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can get this week's edition of the magazine. It is on newsstands now. Plenty of great holiday reading there for the upcoming week. We'll be back next week right here at the same time. Merry Christmas and happy holidays. This is Bloomberg.